Hey, Nikki. Hey, Selena. And hello, everyone. Welcome to Sweet Tea and TV. Hey, y'all. Season 3, Episode 2. But first, but first, are you ready to do a little James Lipton? Nope, shouldn't have phrased it that way. <laughs> are you ready to talk a little James Lipton? <laughs> Questions, yes. Okay, so this one, I think it's going to be hard for you, honestly. Oh, good Lord. What is your favorite curse word? I do cuss a little, actually. Oh! You, you don't get the TikTok reference. Oh. Aww. Well, it depends on your algorithm. <laughs> I think everybody knows this one. My favorite curse word. This one's going to be hard for me. Do you want me to step in and just tell you mine? Yes. Do you want to take a guess? It's the F word. How dare you lob that truth at me? <laughs> So um, I'm going to stall for some time here for you. Uh, I learned something about the F word, actually. What did you learn? Well, my whole life, my whole, at some point in my life, I learned that it meant for unlawful carnal knowledge, but that is not true. Mm. So I don't know. Rather, it's a term whose origins are likely Germanic. Uh, slipped in to, that's not, also not mm. good terminology there, mm -mm. but, uh, it slipped over into ink in the English language a long time ago, like 15th century. And then it's just pretty much always been taboo. Oh. And at some point in time, like they just made that up as if that's a truth, but it's not. I have to remind myself of that a lot with a lot of curse words that they're just words. Do you know why it doesn't make sense is because there was, there wasn't such a thing as an acronym in the time period they try oh. and pin it to. So like, I think we talked before that we just kind of find language interesting. Hmm. So I, I thought that was kind of fascinating. Um, I'm going to tell you why Okay, I do like the F word. Okay. So may, okay, fine. Maybe it lacks decorum as Julia herself might say, but it's, it, it isn't disparaging like a lot of curse words or gross, like the word for poo. You know. Which, incidentally, I think is my favorite cuss word. <laughs> you nasty girl. No. Um, but it's also versatile, which I think a lot of people talk about. Mm -hmm. But, for instance, it has, like, uh, these... It can fit in for a wide variety of situations. So, uh, you could you can say it with anger, but you can also say it with happiness or, ex or sadness, excitement, you name it. And I, who doesn't love versatility? It's true. I feel like, so I had friends when I was in college who used the F word like every other word. Um, but I feel like it's more common now to hear people using it. Like, I've been just in places normally I wouldn't be used to hearing it. Like, I don't know, you're just out in a big crowd of people. Or at, like, I've heard it at the grocery store with kids shopping and people just say it mm -hmm. just out of nowhere. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I do think we all need to step up our vocab. Uh, yeah. I mean, I just feel like versatility is great. I think it's nice to have a word that you like to use, but that one's used a lot. Well, I think it should be well-placed too. Yeah. So, I mean, I'm, I'm a big person on that. We've talked about that before. My grandfather is a preacher. I respect that. Yeah. Um, and I respect the fact that they, they just don't like it. I just want to take like the, I don't understand why there's the morality in it. Personally. Yeah, for sure. To me, it's more just like a manners thing. I think the morality thing, actually, that, that show, The History of Curse Words, I have to actively remind myself. Was that, that Nick Cage that did that? Yes. Okay. That using a curse word does not make you a less moral person. 
No. I have to remind myself of that because that is so ingrained in me. It's gotten interwoven into something at some point 100%. in time. 100%. But it literally has nothing to do with that. It has nothing to do with any of it. You know who didn't curse? Hitler. Oh, really? Mm. Oh, mm-hmm. I didn't know that. So I just, like, I think, like, we have to just, and I'm not saying if you do curse, you're yeah. some amazing <laughs> person or something, but I'm just saying, like, the two have nothing to do with right. each other. Yeah. Uh, I'm waiting for someone to fact check me on the Hitler thing, but I have a reason for thinking that, I swear. His favorite curse word is probably the S word, like mine. Do you want to tell me why that's your favorite curse word? It's just the one I probably would use the most, um, because I say shoot a lot, but when I get really angry about something, the other one slips out. Um, I just use it a lot. The F word is one that I do not use often. Um, but when you do, it's but amazing. boy, when I do, it's I it is it is it's intentionally a, placed. It's a tippy top day for me. I use it. <laughs> I use it with real purpose. Yeah. But I'd probably just like if I drop something, the the other one will probably is more likely to pop out. Mm-hmm. Sugar, mm. which it feels like we have to talk about the southern connection. I don't know if this happens regionally, but I feel like Southerners are really good about replacement. Oh, so I replace a lot. I do too, but sometimes it's, it is not because I don't cuss, because I cuss. But it's just more of like, it's just happened over the years. And I sometimes I just think it's more fun. I say cheese and crackers a lot. So I say crunchy fudge sandwiches. Oh, that is... A lot. That is... <laughs> that is my extensive. like non-curse word, curse word. I, I say don't even know what that's replacing. Yeah, just everything. Because cheese and Shoot. crackers is instead of saying fudge, you say crunchy fudge sandwiches. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah, it's usually angry. I follow you. Yeah. All right. Look, I I think that James Lipton might be on to something. <laughs> that man knows what he's doing. New? <laughs> sure. Oh, I guess I don't know. Why don't we get into the episode and I'll be over here Googling. (laughs) We can only Google one at a time. Yep. New. Okay. 2020. Oh, that's sad. How did I not know that? You probably did. just a really crappy year. 2020 was a rough year. Yeah. So was 2021. So was 2020. I probably did know. You're right. So season two, episode... Season three, episode two. (laughs) It's confusing. Season three, episode two, The Candidate. Hulu says Julia is asked to run for the office of supervisor, but her outspokenness may cost her the election. Air date November 21st, 1988. Why don't we call this one, well, what Selena named it, Sugar Baker versus Briquette? That sounds like a novel idea. Oh. <laughs> Written by LBT and directed by David Trainer. So, our top three general reactions, stray observations. Would you like to lead with a general reaction and or stray? My general reaction to this one is that there's a question mark at the end, but the most political episode so far, you know, we're steeply in politics. It felt like LBT had a lot on her mind. Mm. Um, Like she was reacting to things going on real time in 88, similar to the play that we saw, Mm -hmm. um, 2020, a year in review or whatever. So I got to thinking and um, like what was going on in her headspace at this time. And then it hit me. um, And by hit me, I mean, then I Googled. (laughs) Um, And it was also the 1988 presidential election. Oh, sure. Where Papa Bush beats Michael Dukakis about two weeks before this aired. Oh. So, I mean, so it would have already been in the can, but still, 
it was oh, odd. That explains a lot. Context is important. I think there was a lot of political rhetoric going on at the time. Yeah. Um, that was really out there. And I think what we wind up finding out when we start talking about references and stuff is that a lot of the things that they're debating about were in the ethers at the time. Sure. So that was my first general reaction. What do you have? Oh, that's super smart. Context is important. Mine's sort I think it's sort of related. Um that the whole concept of the Terminator tirade. Just like any time we get Julia railing on something, I really tend to enjoy it as a person who tends toward the dang it, I probably should have said whatever. Mm-hmm. I love hearing Julia say it in real time and I'm like, hmm, that's what I would have said yeah. if I were smarter. Uh, you're plenty smart. <laughs> I just love living vicariously through her. That's what you would say if you were scripted and had the time to oh, write sure. something down. And right. Have someone else say it. Right. <clears throat> I feel like my other general reaction is that we have to remember this episode was written by someone who is a liberal Democrat, mm. um, or at least I assume she is based on everything we've talked about, Best what we know the about the show. Yeah. I mean, I... Well, who knows? They could have tons of conservative Republican best friends. Uh, but I don't I, I don't think they're going to uh, write the most balanced narrative for a conservative. Mm-hmm. So I just, I'm, I'm going to throw that out there. Yeah. But on the other side of that, was it not wild for you to hear the same talking points we hear today, but 34 years ago? Yes. We could turn on the TV right now in this room, and it wouldn't take us long to hear one of these gems. I wrote some of them down. Mm, okay. They're trying to rekindle some of those lost values of family, decency, patriotism. Reclaim America from the kooks and the weirdos. Okay, I think it would have been unusual to be this inflammatory in the 80s. It's not now. Yeah. I think that's pretty normal. Uh, not afraid to say we believe in prayer and the Pledge of Allegiance does not uh, belong in, uh, or excuse me, and the Pledge of Allegiance does not belong in America's classrooms because it does. I feel like I wrote that one down. What I'm trying to say is he was arguing for prayers and he was arguing for the Pledge of Allegiance like it was, you know, the most important thing in the world going on. Return the streets back to the people who pay for them as a policy for homelessness and the idea that the equal rights amendment or the ERA will destroy the American family. And my favorite myth that it will put women on the front lines of war. Hmm. So that was my other really big general reaction. Did you have a reaction to the fact that they asked Anthony to mentor Julia, but not to run? I am now. <laughs> I don't, I don't know why I was, I was like offended on his behalf that he's like, mm-hmm. he said at some point, like, um, you know, I'm knowledgeable about the topic. I'm up on the issues, I think is how he worded it. Um, so they asked me to mentor you. But then we wouldn't get a Julia tirade. Well, yeah. So, but yes, yes. I, I totally see what you're saying. There. short shrift to Anthony again. I, I will say, though, maybe we'll see a different side of Anthony as the show goes on. But he also seems like someone to me who may not want to be pushed out front. Yeah. He might want to be turning some of those gears in the background. But could we not have just, like, alluded to the fact that they asked him and he declined? <laughs> That would be nice. Like, it would have been nice for him to say, you know, they they asked me if I would run, but I think you'd be a much better spokesperson. Yeah. So why don't you do it, and I can help mentor you. Yeah. Do you want to stop talking about this episode now? No, I'm angry. Can you tell? That, uh, but it's, like, low-key angry. Well, yeah, I mean, it's as angry as I can get about a 1988 show. Well, hey, let's keep talking about it. <laughs> um, now, are... 
Any other general reactions or? I also, my other, I'll say this one's probably more general than Stray, but I also think it's a little odd that they didn't exploit Julia winning this election for the purposes of a season arc, like exploring her trials and tribulations as not, what did they call it? She's not a commissioner, the supervisor. Is that a difference between like 80 sitcoms and now? Like, Maybe shows are more likely to have an arc now than they used to. Definitely is the case. And it just felt like, man, this could have been such a thing to follow. Like, imagine how many Terminator tirades we would have had Mm -hmm. if she had been in this position. Right. It's just weird to me. That's fair. Um, So I had, I had like three stray observations. Okay. Uh, Dixie Carter's going to be singing soon. Oh. Like a musical's worth. Oh, yeah. Yikes. So I'm like, I, I was like scared. I was like, woo! And I was like, oh no. Uh-oh. We're going to be doing like Mamma Mia in the middle of the season. Uh, um, T. Tommy was addicted to Snickers bars. Mm. I'm addicted to Reese's holiday treats. Okay. It goes eggs, trees, pumpkins, and anything filled with Reese's pieces. I didn't have any Reese's eggs, any Reese's eggs this Easter. Did you want one? I did, but then I got sick. I got some downstairs. Oh, yeah, man. I'm, I would, I would part with one for you. Oh, I don't know. That's tough. It's up to you. That was super stray. Um, my last one is also about the same conversation though that happens early on, where Anthony's explaining his political background. So of course it has to do with his unfortunate incarceration. Right. Um, but we because he wasn't a person before that. That's, that's right. Totally correct. We hear about someone new from Anthony's unfortunate incarceration a mr willie big razor wilson oh he beat him about the head and ears with a pipe that sounded intense so maybe scarier than t tommy it sounds like it for sure why haven't we been talking about (laughs) big razor wilson (laughs) she showed her cards too soon by introducing us to t tommy and now we've got to invent another mythical creature Beating him about the head and ears. Yeah, that was intense. That's a bad day. Yeah, and then we just kind of glossed over it. And it was like, <laughs> I know, and I and had I this like, yeah. horrifying visual in my head. Yeah, like the HBO prison show or yes. whatever yeah. instead. Yeah. Uh, any stray observations you want to talk about? Got Let's none. jump on into what we liked. What did you like? So, the biggest thing I liked is that um, Julia did something in the debate that I love. As a, like, I can see all sides of every argument. I really can. And I don't necessarily agree with all sides. But I'm like that person that is, like, watching a debate, like a tennis match. And I'm like, oh, yeah, that was a good point. Oh, better point. Oh, touche. You know, like, back Mm -hmm. and forth, back and forth. But she did it when um, the commissioner asked her how she would feel if she was attacked and raped during the seven-day waiting period for her handgun. And she said just as bad as he would feel if he was molested and shot by someone who didn't have to wait seven days. Mm -hmm. And I just love that sort of, like, point-counterpoint where it's just sort of, like, both can be true. Like both situations could be true. And so both now you those gotta, sound bad. Now you have to decide which one sounds worse. I just mm-hmm. I like that. And I think that whole debate sort of was done that way. And I wish I could be that person that thought so quickly on my feet that could do that. Yeah. I see both sides. I can't articulate both sides very well. Well, you can analyze it though. Yeah, maybe. And that's a skill. Yeah, it's something. Uh, other things that you liked? Uh, that was I mean, that was it. I really I thought the entire debate was really nicely placed. I liked it. I love the way it was. It was written, written really, really well. Yeah, mm-hmm. I did. I really did hate that guy, mm-hmm. Commissioner Burkett. I really didn't like him. 
Yeah. He's, uh, but you made a good saying. point that I wasn't thinking about. And, and it's hard. Again, context is important. And I have to remind myself, and I did not while I was watching this and taking my notes, that we're watching something that happened many, many years ago. Because yeah. it felt so current. It yeah. felt so of the moment. It, yeah. I mean, literally, I hear so many of these arguments still today. But I do have to remind myself that there was one person that wrote this episode. Mm-hmm. And there was one point of view that was shared. Mm-hmm. And... But I've also watched Fox News, and I don't know that he was that far off. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, so I liked a lot of things about this episode. I'll try and move it a nice clip. <laughs> um, but Anthony and Charlene singing and dancing together towards the beginning. Oh, yeah, that was cute. I just love that. that I'd like to see cute. them as a little duo. Uh, how they bring Anthony in for this one. Uh, but now I feel differently because I kind of, I, it still felt like a step up for me, but for me because normally he's the guy loading the baggage mm-hmm. or making deliveries mm-hmm. and in this one he's coaching Julia he's the mastermind behind it all yeah and yeah. so I like that more but I totally agree with what you were saying that like he also doesn't get the shot at being the candidate mm-hmm. and that's messed up yeah um Suzanne's commentary throughout uh on getting her hair done on the commissioner's viewpoints uh, I wrote some of these down just because well, I didn't write them down. I typed them. Uh, but do you know who did the roots today? Mr. Donnie himself. Mr. Donnie doesn't even touch roots, but he did it for me because of who I am and what I stand for. And so in a very political episode, I just love that that was something that... <laughs> that's what she would be That's what with. she stands for. Mm-hmm. I get um, that. And then there have to be all kinds. Uh, yeah. Well, I loved it. It was one of my likes. But she also says about Briquette, I mean, what did that guy say anyway? Don't give bums money. Women shouldn't have guns. So what? <laughs> I just, I mean, don't agree with anything that she said. <laughs> but she said it well. <laughs> she had some good comedic timing and that I can appreciate. Um, there's a lot packed into this episode. There is a lot. Anthony's impression of British royal accents was also everything. <laughs> that whole back and forth was very funny. Yeah, I'm not even going to attempt it because yeah. it's just like too much. But watch the episodes, y'all. And it's just, it's really funny. And you know who else had a really great one back in the day? Tiny Toons. They used to do a British, they would. They had like a Charles and Diana on there. Oh. That was also everything. Um. Okay, and then Anthony has this fantastic line about Julia becoming unhinged at the debate. Oh. But but what they don't know and what kind of has me concerned is that before you can make him mad, he'll make you mad. And then you'll go off on one of your machine gun hellfire and brimstone diatribes. The whole podium will go up in flames. We'd have to run and drag you off the stage, and then people will begin to think that you, you're just a big mouth, man-busting, liberal, pinko nutcase. I just thought that was really good. <laughs> I, and that may be what happened. Yeah, I'm never going to be able to get to it fast enough, but Julia's business suit set in this is awesome. It's oh. when she's deciding that she's going to run. It's a matching pattern skirt and jacket set with an emerald green top underneath and a gold feather pin with a green jewel in the middle. And man, she looks stunning. Mm. Um, can't show it to you, but it's somewhere in my pictures. <laughs> I won't make you wait. Before this episode, I was like, bring up the picture, bring up the picture. That's how well that went. And then I, I'm sorry, can I share Julia's 
remarks when she goes yes. on a tear. <laughs> she was like, I was can like, I share, Julia? Sure. Doing what? Um, I was thinking you seemed to have forgotten the phrase separation of church and state. But the one thing I didn't forget was just how divisive and dishonest and distasteful someone like you can be. I've sat here today and listened to you pander to these people, but you don't actually care about them or you wouldn't be sitting here reinforcing their ignorance and prejudices. You heard that, callers? She just called you ignorant and prejudiced. I do not think everyone in America is ignorant, far from it, but we are today probably the most uneducated, underread, and illiterate nation in the Western Hemisphere, which makes it all the more puzzling to me why the biggest question on your small mind is whether or not little Johnny is going to recite the Pledge of Allegiance every morning. I'll tell you something else, Mr. Briquette. I have had it up to here with you and your phony issues and your Yankee duty... Yep, your Yankee <laughs> duty... <laughs> That one's just for you, Nikki. Your Yankee doodle yakking. If you like reciting the Pledge of Allegiance every day, then I think you should do it in the car, in the shower, wherever the mood strikes you. But you don't try to tell me when or where I have to say or do something or salute anything. Because I'm an American too, and that is what being an American is all about. And another thing, I am sick and tired of being made to feel that if I'm not a member of a little family with 2.4 children who goes uh, just to see Jerry Falwell's church and puts their hands over their hearts every morning, that I'm unreligious, unpatriotic, and un-American. Because I have news for you, Mr. Briquette. All liberals are not kooks any more than all conservatives are fascists. And the last time I checked, God was neither a Democrat nor a Republican. And just for your information, yes, I am a liberal, but I am also a Christian, and I get down on my knees and pray every day on my own turf, on my own time. And one of the things I pray for, Mr. Briquette, is that people uh, will, with power will get good sense and people with good sense will get power. And that the rest of us will be blessed with the patience and the strength to survive the people like you in the meantime. It was long, but God, it was well written. It was really well written. And I do a terrible Julia, but <sighs> darn it, she just moves me. <laughs> And I guess LBT moves me. And when you're talking about arguments, I think that's a really strongly written one. Yeah. Um, because it really pokes at a lot of at a lot of bull crap, honestly. There was a whole thing about the Pledge of Allegiance that I feel like maybe I've like I missed an argument somewhere in 1988. Because um, that was like, I got you, girl. Oh my gosh, it was so like she just kept coming back to it. It was. It was happening at the time. I, did you look at it up in your references? I looked up the Pledge of Allegiance more in the context of something that she said about the history of the pledge. Yep. I did not look into why this was like up for debate and, and why it was like the biggest. I, it honestly felt like the biggest talking point I just kept hearing. Yeah. From her. Yeah. Was that she hates being told to do the pledge. I think, yeah. She, like LBT. That's and LBT I, right there, don't you think? I, it must be because yeah. I, I grew up in the... Going to school in the 90s, and we did the Pledge of Allegiance every day. So there must have been a debate that was lost somewhere. Uh, yeah. I, so I, I did look into it. I found it, and we can talk about it in references. Um, and we also tacked on a moment of silence after 9-11. Yeah, we So did we too. had the moment of silence, and we had the pledge. Yeah. Um, so what about, 
other things that we want to talk about that we liked or we want to skip on to dislikes? I'm ready for dislikes if you are. What you got? Well, I didn't like that Julia didn't win the election. I wrote down that entire last bit after because I have news for you, Mr. Burkett. It's crazy to me that after all those points she made that somehow it was a landslide loss for Julia. They have a title card at the end that's a, pe- that's a picture of a newspaper and Julia lost in a landslide. And there was nothing unrational in what she said. Nope. She basically when have people been rational? The conservative perspective um, that America is a land of freedom and personal right, and gun rights are people rights. So she basically said, like, you all have the we should have the right to choose. I don't know that I agree with it necessarily. I don't have a problem with the pledge, but maybe there's something I missed somewhere along the way. What I do know is my daughter still does it. Um, but yeah, there was. Just seemed weird that she didn't say anything inflammatory or offensive there, in my opinion. No, I don't think she did either. But I don't. I don't think that. I don't think people always uh, select a candidate based on uh, rational thought. For sure. So I just have to point out that if you listen to those words and then choose to vote for someone them? else, it was yeah, it was wild to me. Yeah. So again, TV show making a point, but I think that's how uh, how elections. How certain people who are in trial right now got elected. I have no dislikes. No dislikes? Zero. No dislikes? I really like this episode. Oh. And on that note, are you ready to rate this sucker? I am now. (laughs) We added the whole who won the episode and who lost the episode, and I think my rating got lost in there. But I'm ready now. Um, So, what do you have? I think I used this category last year for another one. Oh, maybe. What is it? Well-played debates. I think you did too. I think I did. Well, you can use it twice. Consistency. Yeah. I give this one four. I think it was a well-written episode. Mm -hmm. Um, I really did not like Commissioner Briquette, which is a choice. That's a choice that was made when they were writing the episode, casting the episode, making that character. Yeah. Um, It's a choice. They could have gone another way and maybe made me like him more. Like Reverend whatever in the religious episode, mm-hmm. where I didn't totally hate that guy. Yeah. Um. So this one, it, this was super easy for me because I was like, this guy seems like a real tool. Mm-hmm. Mm, can't do this, man. Um. They could have made him a little more, someone that I like re- that resonated with me, and maybe the uh, the episode would have landed differently with me. Julia's final diatribe would have landed differently with me. Um. That's interesting. And maybe that's why they made the choice they did. Yeah, I don't think she wanted him to be likable. Yeah. Uh, I don't think that's uh the headspace that she was in. Um, I gave it a five out of five machine gun, hellfire and brimstone diatribes, which I like, I really wish I could get that on a shirt. <laughs> um, but I was just, I've already said this, but I was just really impressed with the writing in this one, especially during the debate. I thought Suzanne was hilarious and well used in the episode. She was almost like a friendly foil to Julia. Mm-hmm. Um, and no unnecessary B plot which I think is Yes. Oh, that's a good point. You know, this, true. yeah, this to me was also LBT mastering that 22 minute space that she has to oh, play with, uh-huh. which isn't a lot. Yeah. Like, so I'm just thinking back to even that they had all of that conversation around the British Royals and everything. I'm like, how did they fit all that in here? But they did. Yeah. And it landed with me. Um, let's talk about who won the episode. I guess for me, it would be Julia. Okay. Even though she didn't win the election, I felt like she made some really valid points. Um, and I feel like, 
and maybe this is a woman judging another woman. So my perspective will be different. She didn't strike me as like a crazy woman. Like, you know, like a, she wasn't crazy. She wasn't unhinged. She no. wasn't emotional. She no. was just passionate. Yeah. And she, everything she said was rational and valid. And I appreciated that because I think it's really hard to, for a woman to speak the things that she said and not seem any of those other things. That we like to put on women. Exactly. I think her tirades are poised. Yes. Because she just holds herself like almost in this. I saw some old pictures of Catherine Hepburn. And they really remind me a lot of one another. Mm. And they just, all like, their posture is different. Like, Julia has swagger. Mm -hmm. Swagger on swagger. Mm -hmm. And so I just think even when she, even if, like, I think if I did that, it would not come off the same way. Right. But when she does it, it works. Right. Which is maybe why they nominated Julia to run instead of Anthony. Because I don't know how Anthony is under pressure. But maybe she seemed like a shoe in And maybe in 1988, Anthony doesn't get away with saying the same things. Although yeah, she didn't either. That's so. true. I don't know. Uh, I also nominated Julia for winning the episode. You're right. I mean, she doesn't win the seat. But in my mind, she won the debate. Yeah. And that's how LBT wrote it to happen. Right. Um, who do you think lost the episode? <sighs> Poor people of Atlanta. They have to be served by Wilson I Burkett. I love your... Uh, <sighs> You're a uh, larger My meta. Yeah. I mean, you really like, you're thinking about the universe of people. And I think that's amazing. Isn't that what it's all about? It's, it's about all the about people. the people, mm -hmm. the peeps. Um, I, I chose Mary Jo. <laughs> I think her TV is about to go out and that just sucks. <laughs> and then us maybe, because uh, we're still hearing these same arguments all these years later. So I think we also lost. That's true. We lost the episode and just life. That's true. Just life. <clears throat> Let's uh, dig into these references because, man, we were really lots of references. Uh, 80s things. What do you have? The quote where Charlene said, whatever happened to decent names like Tiffany and Shannon? How 80s is that? That's fantastic. Yeah. Uh, and then there was the whole birth of Princess Beatrice, which accompanied that statement. That was all very 80s. Yeah. I'm going to roll through these. Okay. This is a big 80s one, I thought. Uh, the TV at Mary Jo's was very oh, 80s. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah, I mean, straight There up. were rabbit ears, no? There was a whole thing going on, yeah. Uh, calling assistant secretaries. We've gotten that one before. Reader's Digest, Mary Jo on Suzanne's ability to distill things. Oh, right. Uh, I know Reader's Digest is still around, but it, feels, Reader's Digest. it feels very 80s. You read Reader's Digest? I don't today? currently. Okay. I used to love it. Uh, I used to love it in the 80s. Uh, just kidding. Reader's Digest. <laughs> I don't know. I might have to look into getting a subscription. That's the kind of news I can read. Yeah. Brief. Distilled. Susan, Suzanne's version. <laughs> um, we get another uh, reference to Julia as the Terminator, which belongs to the 80s. I'm sorry. I know you did ones outside of the 80s, but the one, you know, that's the first one. Julia's reading glasses. <coughs> Man, I should have taken a picture. But, They're always whew. really big. I mean... I, I don't understand how I haven't caught these babies before, but her whole face disappeared behind them. But they don't look bad on her. Not well, in the way they would look bad beautiful. on me. Yeah. That's true. beautiful. Mm. But Julia, she carried she carried them. Um, so Charlie mentions the Leave it to Beaver remake. She is referring to the reunion movie Still the Beaver. Hmm. Still the Beaver. <laughs> Just can't. In 1983, which was followed by a series that ran until 89, 
It was about the adult beaver cleaver, his family and friends. How in the heck did that even happen? We must have just been, I think we were in this period where we were longing for the 60s again, maybe, huh? Well, it's the same thing that's happening now for the 80s. Well, in the 90s. Yeah. Uh, Yeah, Uh, that's fair. Why, do you want to watch it? I feel like I've seen that Leave it to Beaver show. That sounds terrible to me. Was there a movie too? Yeah, there was a reunion movie that kicked. No, it all no, 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 not a reunion movie. Like a, um, oh, like how they redid Brady Bunch, like that style. I love those movies. Uh, yeah, I thought there was one like that. I feel like I'm remembering something different. Maybe I'm thinking of Dennis the Menace. Oh, maybe. Eh, it's all the same. Um, we watched a lot of Leave It to Beaver in my house. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. Uh, I think I've maybe seen one episode. It wasn't for me. If uh, I'm sorry. It's just it's too, fine. too perfect or something. Um, Briquette refers to the concept of reviving the Equal Rights Amendment. I feel passionate about this one, so I'm going to have to talk about it a little bit. First, for anyone who doesn't know, the ERA is a proposed amendment to the Constitution designed to guarantee equal legal rights for all American citizens, regardless of sex. The ERA was introduced in 1923, nearly 100 years ago, and was finally passed in 1972, but it also needed to be ratified. On June 30th, 1982, the extended deadline lapsed and the ERA stalled just three three states short of ratification. So from my reading, a lot of people thought this was the final nail in the coffin, even though it winds up officially getting reintroduced in 1983 and then again from 85 to 92 every year. But I imagine this is what Briquette is referring to. Um, For those who don't know, to this day, the ERA is still not ratified, even though uh, we now have the number of states needed to ratify it. And we've had them since January of 2020. The long story short, do you know about this? Okay. The long story short is that its status remains in limbo until Congress, the courts, or the U.S. National Archivist um, budges. So we'll link to an article so that you can read the details for yourself. Uh, More importantly, the article also outlines steps you can take to help if you feel so inclined. But this is one of those moments I remain frustrated by our home state of Georgia and the South because when you look at the map of those who haven't ratified the ERA, we are highly overly represented among the states. Um, So there you go. So there was a fair amount of focus, like we've talked about, about the Pledge of Allegiance. Here's what I found that connects to why that was such a sticking point for LBT. Um, It was a wedge issue in the 1988 presidential election used by Bush against Dukakis, um, who he called out for vetoing a Massachusetts bill that would have required public school teachers to recite the pledge. Um, so the reason he didn't, or the reason he vetoed it is because he felt like the bill violated free speech. Um, but Bush used this as an opportunity to pin Dukakis as a quote unquote liberal. And it worked. It was a real, it was a real sticking point for voters. Um, I have, I have an article that we can link to about it, but it was just one of these things that's like not really important, but really got blown up at the time. Yeah, that feels like an issue, maybe. I wouldn't have chosen to blow up my my entire approach to the presidency on. Um, what, what do you mean? Maybe would have picked a different issue to lean into on if I were Dukakis. So as not he to give He didn't lean Bush, into it. Bush did. Well, he, 
Or did he? It sounds like he um, expressed his... Well, the reason he didn't, it was like this bill that happened in Massachusetts was ahead of all of this. Bush brings it out or his, you know, campaign does. And um, I I think the article is just citing the reasons that Dukakis did veto that bill. But it's not, I don't think Dukakis was like out like at the podiums. Like, and I vetoed that bill. I'm pretty sure he probably wanted this issue to go away. Yeah. (laughs) So, um, I mean, I'm not like a... I don't know anything else about Dukakis. This was the second thing I ever knew about him. One, that he ran in 88, and then this. We looked into two totally different things on the pledge. Oh, I looked into that, too. It being written for children. Mm -hmm. I still don't understand the... I still... I looked into this for a while, as long as I could handle, Mm -hmm. um, and I still don't understand the issue. So I did find on the American Legion website that it was written by Francis Bellamy, it was first given wide publicity through the official program of the National Public Schools Celebration of Columbus Day, which was pr- printed in the Youth's Companion of September 8, 1892. Um, it was sent out in leaflet form to schools throughout the country. The original words were different. They made some changes in the 20s to specifically reference the United States because it didn't even originally <laughs> reference the U.S. Um, but no form of the pledge received official recognition by Congress until June 22, 1942, when it was formally included in the U.S. flag code. The official name of the Pledge of Allegiance was adopted in 1945, and the last change in language came on Flag Day 1954, when Congress passed a law which added the words, under God, after one nation. The part I found most interesting was that the pledge was originally said with what's called a Bellamy salute, which looks an awful lot like the Nazi party salute. Oh, that's So nice. they changed it to the hand over the heart. Hmm. I thought that was interesting. I mean, it was a PR stunt. The Pledge of Allegiance? Mm-hmm. Oh. Yeah, that's what it was written for. It was written to sell... I, I don't know how this got knocked out of my notes, but, like, it was it was written it for the magazine to sell magazines, and then everybody got a free flag with it. Mm. Like, so, I mean, really, like, people assigned importance to it later on, and then kind of, like, every time that we go through this bump in history, based on what I read... Uh, where we're kind of like focusing inwards and we're getting into this like more nationalist little stint of time, then everybody gets really like, uh, I won't say crazy about it, say up in arms about it. They're, they're very excited. It's suddenly very important. Like it was like the founding of America or something. And so I think it's just important for people to understand exactly what Julia was saying. It's like, it was just like like a basically the extent of a little poem that was put in a magazine, like so probably not something to get like terribly excited about. But you know what people do? They get terribly excited about things. It just sucks because I think this is one of those issues that's tough for me because I feel like it is important for us as Americans to like express our Americanism in some way, like to make a commitment to our country. Like why would we not pledge ourselves to our country in some way? So it's tough because I see Julia's argument. But I'm also sort of like, I kind of like that my daughter does it in school and that she's saying I'm an American. And I didn't I'm even know they did it in country. school anymore. So apparently they do. That shocked us. I think it probably differs depending on where you are. Maybe. I know I've heard of places where that hasn't been a thing since like we were in school. Mm. Um, I mean, I think if you're jazzed about it, that's great. But I don't think you should have to do it. I don't think you should have to. But do I don't that. think you should have to do anything. So that's just kind of my basic stance on life. You um, shouldn't have to pay taxes. That's what I'm saying. Here, here. Um, so do do you want to move into Southern things? 
I think my southern thing is something that's in my references we should talk about. So okay. I'll save it for there. Okay. Um, I just wanted to say that they call this station WTGB, the news station. Uh, I mean, they probably were using fake call letters I looked anyway. it up and I couldn't find it. Yeah, I think it would have been WSB, WAGA, or W. W-X-I-A. Sorry, old blindy over here. Can't see anything. And then the front of the newspaper at the end says the Atlanta Courier. Uh, the front page is how we learned Julia lost. I just thought it was nice and super realistic that a city-level commissioner seat got the front line of the paper. Mm. Like, that may, or front page. That absolutely makes sense. It happens every day. <laughs> Even in 1988. It was a big deal. I also have one more Southern thing. Uh, Zippity-doo-dah. That's in my references we need to talk about. That's the one. Then I'll like. shut up and I'll let you No, you it. can go into it. It's fine. Uh, uh, well, you want to start us off then? Because I don't. Sure. Uh, it's a song that was in <laughs> the Disney 1946 live action and animated movie Song of the South. It was sung by James Basquette. Um, for Zippity Doodah, the film won the Academy Award for Best Original Song and was the second Disney song to win this award after When You Wish Upon a Star from Pinocchio in 1940. In 2004, it finished at number 47 in AFI's 100 Years, 100 Songs, a survey of top tunes in American cinema. I think the reason this is in your southern section is because the movie it comes from, Song of the South, mm -hmm. and probably the reference that Anthony was making by offering to sing it. Mm -hmm. um, I'm going to be honest. I did not know the movie Song of the South existed until maybe a handful of years ago. Oh, really? I've never heard of this movie, but I definitely know the song Zippity Doodah. Mm -hmm. um, it's just wild to me because I am Southern. So Song of the South, um, like I said, was a live action animated musical drama film. In some ways, people think it was really groundbreaking because it was one of the first to combine live action and animation on the same film. Um it's based on the collection of Uncle Remus stories as adapted by Joel Chandler Harris, and it stars James Basquette as Uncle Remus. The film takes place in the southern United States. Um, Disney says it's during the Reconstruction era, mm -hmm. but originally, um, to some viewers, it looked as if it was taking place pre-Civil War, so on a plantation um, with slaves. And so that was it was a, a lightning rod issue for some people mm -hmm. because they saw it as a glamorization of slavery because they thought that, so James Basquette was um, black, a black actor. Um, he's playing Uncle Remus, which is um, a storyteller who is a, a former slave. Mm -hmm. um, and so people were thinking they were sort of um, making slavery look amazing. Then even when they clarified that it was re reconstruction era, that does not really help the issue no. because um, then the narrative becomes that these former slaves are happy-go-lucky living on their former plantation, and they're grateful to their former slave owner for giving them this opportunity. Yeah. I, I will let you give your sort of, I'm sure you have things to add, but I will say um, there's a podcast called You Must Remember This that covered this in like six episodes is way more than I could ever do it justice uh, here. And oh, we're not going to do six episodes right now. I don't think so. Uh, um, yeah. Beyond just to say this is a movie that existed. It has come back out a few times. It is no notably in the Disney vault, probably forever. Definitely forever. Will never be on Disney plus, but they have re-released it as recently as 2000. I mean, it's uh, 1988 and maybe a little more recently than that. 
Um, one more thing I'll say, though, is that uh, it premiered at the Fox Theater here in Atlanta and that Walt Disney stayed at the Georgian Terrace right across the street after the premiere. Oh, really? He actually left the premiere. He ended up not staying. Um, he was notoriously, like, devastated by the criticisms of this movie. He yeah. thought he was doing the right th- I'll say, people think he thought he was doing the right thing with this movie. Yeah, because I think I read that there was, like, even when they – there were people around – the making of the movie that were like, is this the best idea? <laughs> there were several people who advised him otherwise. But it's still, well, we still have it. Y- yes. So. It's very layered. It is fascinating. Mm-hmm. Like I said, that podcast did six episodes. I think I'm through like episode four. Oh, and you're listening to it right now. I had okay. to because sure. actually I think it was my husband who told me about this movie. I was like, what? this can't be real. There's no way there's a Disney movie about the South. And then the more you dig into it, you're like, who thought this was a good idea? Yeah. I mean... I do love Zippity Doodle. I mean, that movie wouldn't even be a glimmer of a thought today. No. You know? Um, I mean, maybe for some people, but it wouldn't realistically be considered. Right. Well, and I think I think that uh, in addition to people around Disney like being like, uh, maybe, maybe it'll, maybe do something else, you know, uh, like after the movie comes out, there's also controversy. The NAACP said in a statement that, um, quote unquote, in an effort neither to offend audiences in the North or South, the production helps to perpetuate a dangerously glorified picture of slavery. Uh, the film unfortunately gives the impression of an idyllic master slave relationship, which is in distortion of the facts, which is what you're saying before. But like, just not even that that was being said, but that the NAACP is coming out and saying that too, I think kind of shows that like, even that, like some people might be like, it's just a movie, but it's not, it's not just a movie. Like it's not. And it's so layered. Like, even if you start with the uncle Remus stories and Joel Chandler Harris, who was a Georgian, he was from Eatonton. Mm -hmm. Even when you start there, like the crux of where this came from, um, they say that, um, he took those stories from retellings he heard of slaves. Right. And didn't credit them and told what probably amounts to the whitewashed version Now of that's it. a tale as old as time. Yeah, well, sure. Sure. But I say that to say that it's, again, it's layered in um, probably a lot of people thinking they're doing a lot of right things by, you know, like I'm going to give, uh, and these were published in the Atlanta Journal-Constitution originally, and then Disney worked with his family after he died to secure the rights to it, to use the stories in this movie. You could still go to his house. I almost got, when I wanted to do historic preservation, I almost got a job there. Mm. So I, you know, I think I grew up on those stories, you know, I mean, I, and I, maybe it's because I'm from Georgia, but I remember those being like somehow baked into like the classroom or something at some point. So I remember my mom telling me about them, but I don't, I don't remember learning about them. Georgia, Georgia in the 80s and the 90s. Um, but, I mean, I also remember liking them. It was about a bunny. Mm-hmm. Uh, kids like bunnies. So, mm-hmm. you know, um, and they were sort of, they're not that different than like Wiley e. Coyote kind of stories. And so this podcast actually talks about that a little bit, about how, um, and then it goes into like um, roots and minstrel shows yeah. and how like actually the early cartoons have their roots and minstrel shows. I can see that. Yeah. And they bring up Looney Tunes as an example 
Um, and, and so it's it's all layered and interrelated. Yeah. Well, maybe I need to check out this podcast. Maybe so, y'all need to check out this podcast. And I was going to say, we could have done an extra sugar on this, but honestly, this um, this woman that does this podcast, again, did, I think it's six episodes. It may be even more. Let's and dug her into her it. Days. Yeah, like to depths I would never think to go because yeah. I didn't even know this movie existed. Um, but it does. It was the branding still used for Splash Mountain at Disney World. Yeah. Um, they are now rebranding it, I believe. It's going to be Princess and the Frog themed, which yep. incidentally is the first Disney movie to feature a black princess. Um, so it's sort of like a flipping of the script and trying to revise that history and narrative. Mm-hmm. You know what's so crazy? Like, I know I've been to Splash Mountain and I don't even remember seeing any of those characters. They play zippity doodah or played, I guess, during the ride. I've never, I don't think I've ever ridden Splash Mountain. Um, and then the, they, yeah, they're, the illustrations are like drawn on the signage. I think we did see it when we went to Disney last year. They had the ride closed because they're redoing everything, but I think we did see Brea Rabbit. Yeah. Oh, I believe, I believe it's there. It's just oh, weird how like, I didn't even You see didn't it. even register. I was like, water. I think that's maybe how they got away with it for so long. I think you're right. Because it wasn't so, it wasn't outwardly Song of the South. It was just this cute little rabbit. Yeah. Well, I, so I think we're, I think I linked to the article for show notes. Um, so like where I found a lot of this and it talks about that podcast that mm-hmm. you're listening to. Um, I, the other thing I just want to mention is that while this Things about this story were problematic. Not everyone felt that way at the time mm-hmm. when it was released, including African-American actors who appeared in the movie. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it's you can understand why people who appeared in the movie are more likely to come out and say that, but I do think that that is kind of another part. You're talking about it being multiple layers. It's a very layered story. There was a whole episode in this podcast about that very issue, mm-hmm. about how... Um, about their feelings, those actors' feelings on the roles they played, and then their community's feelings on their feelings. It reminds me a lot of when we talked about Bojangles. Mm-hmm. And, and he's brought up in the podcast, too. Oh, look, there you go. Um, it all full comes full circle. circle. <laughs> yep. Uh, and in 1986, when you were talking about the last time it was released, like, in theaters, mm-hmm. uh, it made $17 million. So, yeah. So probably why... LBT is thinking about zippity doodah around this time when she's jotting down stuff. So probably, yeah. Th- like in this. the podcast, they brought up um, the uh, like how it's considered one of the um, most lucrative movies made in 1947 or whatever year it was. And she says, "But that's nonsense because that's taking into account." Um, how much it made in each one of these re-releases. So she talks about Disney's approach to the vault and how they put these movies in the vault to create a scarcity effect so that they can trot them out 10 years later and make more money off of... They're so smart. Um, And and it, like... If that offends you, don't go see – like, if you if you don't want to buy into it, I totally understand. But I think it creates this scarcity in this moment. It creates a moment around things. All that to say that's how they made so much money off Song of the South was by trotting it out every 20, 25 years so that, you know, she said in her lifetime she's actually seen it twice. Mm-hmm. Once when she was four with her mother and once again as an adult in her, like, late 20s or early 30s. And as you can imagine, her experiences were very different. On both viewings. Yeah. She remembered loving it as a child, watching it as an adult, and seeing how it falls apart. It's got all the right packaging mm-hmm. for a little kid. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I've only ever seen it in my sing-along tapes that I used to have. Yep, VHSs when I was little, <laughs> and I had a bunch of them. Um, and uh, so definitely Zippity Doodah was on one of those. It may have even been like 
the flagship song mm-hmm. from the video. Um, but I'm glad that you looked into it too, because I do think we're a Southern podcast. LBT doesn't always give us a lot to work with, mm-hmm. but just with this one little phrase, yeah, it just felt like something we needed to mention because it is literally from a movie that is supposed, you know, that is set in the South mm-hmm. here in our home state. And then on top of that is built around stories that were published by a man who lived right here in Atlanta. Mm-hmm. Um, and so those feel like all, and then there's obviously all the controversial things around it that are this, this other side of living in the South that we often talk about. And the part that we've, uh, that we've pledged to not ignore. Mm-hmm. So we've hit on it. Um, I, I That was all for me in Southern references. Mm-hmm. You want to talk about uh, just broader references now? So that was uh, one of them. And then I also wanted to talk about Deo, which I refer to as the Beetlejuice song. Okay. All comes full circle. Um, but it's also called the Banana Boat Song. Mm-hmm. It's the song they sang at the beginning of the episode, Deo. I just love the way you say that. Um, it's a Jamaican folk song. It's the signature song of Harry Belafonte, sung in the Calypso style. Um, I found an article on HistoryDaily.com that said the song most likely originated around the turn of the 20th century when banana trade in Jamaica increased. It was sung by workers who loaded shipping vessels with bananas down by the docks. The dock workers typically worked at night to avoid the uh, harsh heat of the day. Then when daylight arrived, they knew the boss would come to tally up the loads so they could go home. Um... So that's the origins of the song. Also, Harry Belafonte had a um, had a relationship with the song and had some feelings about it that are probably worth looking into. Um, but he, I think this song in particular was um, credited with, uh, and I didn't write any of this down, but it was credited with like this um, introduction of the Calypso style to... Um, America into American music. Mm -hmm. And so he was sort of groundbreaking in that. And then everyone started doing it. And like at this point in time, everyone had sort of this like Calypso-y Jamaican sounding song. Um, And he had a reaction to that and changed his music style because he hated hearing it so much. Yeah, well, the abridged version. I get that from an artist's point of view. If everybody's doing it, you want to move on. I, you know, he just, he's still alive. He just turned 95 in March. Wow. So I just wanted to mention that because so many times we're like, is he still alive? I mean, like, and it just, and he is kind of this huge figure. I think one thing that sort of struck me as I was watching the episode is like, so to exactly what you said, we get this at the top, like Anthony's singing it, they're laboring. Um, and then we get it at the tail end again. And I was like, why? Mm. you know it's a catchy tune well you're talking about calypso music and that just doesn't really have anything to do with this episode right like in in and of itself but so but i she's got to be doing it for a reason she didn't just maybe i'm like well the rights may have been easy to get when did beetlejuice come out at uh 85 84 86 capitalizing on beetlejuice Uh, i i think it's possible this was an lbt nod to social change and justice probably and beetlejuice of course um it was 1988 1988 okay uh but i i think because you're talking about like the song itself was about the daily struggles of jamaican laborers so it is a socially conscious song and I read in one article it's saying if you were listening to Belafonte back in the day, 
like, according to this New Yorker article, you were making a political statement. And this whole episode is making a political statement. So I wonder if some of that was brought in for that reason. Otherwise, I just, I can't fathom. I mean, it's a cool song. I just explained to you, Beetlejuice came out the year this episode came out. I hear you. And I think she was like, oh, yeah, Dale. I like the way you say that. Dale. (laughs) Okay. We'll let you have it, Nikki. It's because of Beetlejuice. You want to talk us through cut lines? Didn't have any this time. There were none? I don't think there were any. Well... How would you cut any? I know. Because if you did, the next You'd, thing really wouldn't make sense. You lose a lot. Well, that's it then. All See right. ya. The next episode, <laughs> well, I'm going to give my plug before the next episode. Yeah. Episode three, EP Phone Home. As always, we'd love everyone to follow along with us and engage. Instagram and Facebook at Sweet Tea and TV. Our email address is at SweetTeaTVPod at gmail.com. Our website is www.sweetteatv.com. And like I mentioned on our last episode, we now have a support us page with lots of different ways that you can support the podcast if you'd like. And a super easy and free way to support the podcast is to give us a rating or a review wherever you listen to the podcast so other people can find it. And we'd appreciate it. And we'd appreciate it. (laughs) And, uh, well... So I'm taking your job away from you right now, and I don't know why. It's fine. Go for it. I wasn't doing it justice, apparently. You are absolutely doing it justice. My brain is just scrambled into a thousand eggs. Um, On this week's Extra Sugar, we're going to be talking about homelessness in Atlanta, uh, but we'll also talk about it a little bit more broadly than that and how people can help. So Sounds good. You know what that means. What does that mean? We'll see you around the bend. Welcome to this week's edition of Extra Sugar. So there was a ton of ground covered in this episode's political debate between Julia and Commissioner Briquette. But in thinking about Atlanta, one topic that really stood out for me was the topic of homelessness. Um, Nikki, uh, per usual, I'm just going to stay right from the top. If uh, you have any questions as I go through, jump in. If you think there's anything where, like, I'm just leaving a giant old hole. Like, let me know. (laughs) Um, But so the Designing Women episode is set in Atlanta in 1988. But what I want to do real quickly is flash forward and talk about what homelessness looks like today. So I'm going to go ahead and share 2020 data because it was the last count not impacted by COVID-19. But we can link to newer data for those who are curious According to the U.S. Interagency Council on Homelessness, on a single night in 2020, roughly 580,000 people were experiencing homelessness in the United States. Six in 10, or 61%, were staying in sheltered locations, emergency shelters, or transitional housing programs, and nearly four in 10, or 39%, were in unsheltered locations, such as on the street, in abandoned buildings, or in other places not suitable for human habitation. 2020 would have, or was the fourth consecutive year that homelessness increased nationwide. I couldn't find anything that readily was just like, here's what it's like in the region. But it seemed to me that given we're a Southern podcast, it would be at least a little helpful to talk about what's going on in the South. Uh, Take this with a grain of salt. I did some math. Oh, no. I tried my best. Um, But using those 2020 state breakdowns, 
from what I could tell, there were 124,916 people experiencing homelessness on a single night in the South, or to put it another way, roughly one, in, one of five people experiencing homelessness were in the South. So not an insignificant number. In Georgia specifically, that same year, there were 10,234 people experiencing homelessness in our home state. Atlanta Mission estimates one-third live in Atlanta. That was 2,300 people. And last year alone, more than 7,000 people sought shelter there. I think just to stop and say that's what makes these counts so incredibly challenging is it's not like you get like your homeless card. Right. And I mean, these are people like facing all kinds of different situations and probably bouncing in and out of maybe the, maybe a system, maybe not a system. Anyways, it's the counts aren't perfect. So I think the other thing to say with all of these numbers is even when I'm doing math or not, to some extent, I think these tend to be conservative. Mm -hmm. I would also be remiss to not say Atlanta has seen a decline in homelessness in recent years. Last year, they reported a 25% decrease since 2015. For anybody thinking, well, it's probably because of COVID, I, that probably does factor into something as large as 25%, but I'm pretty sure I saw articles where they were already seeing declines before that was a thing. There are a lot of stereotypes about homelessness, uh, that it's a choice, that these individuals are lazy, that they're all uh, facing addictions. These myths range from the absurd to flat out wrong. Atlanta Mission also reports that of the people they serve every day, 81% have experienced physical or sexual abuse, 58% report symptoms of trauma, 57% have a chronic medical condition, 55% spend their free time alone. 46% are under um, or unemployed, and 28% report drug or alcohol abuse. Unfortunately, sometimes life is a series of unexpected events. Take Jason, for instance, a U.S. Marine Corps veteran, his wife Liz, and their son. So they moved here to Atlanta to take care of Jason's sick mother. When both his mom and grandmother died within months of each other, they found themselves virtually homeless overnight after a family member unexpectedly sold the house they'd all been sharing. Things snowballed from there. Their son was taken into foster care. Jason couldn't access his VA benefits without a phone number or the proper documentation. And he and his wife struggled to find employment without a permanent address or identification. The good news is that they were able to get back on their feet and reunite with their son with the help of Hope Atlanta. Uh, they are a local organization committed to fighting homelessness and incidentally where I found this among many other stories. The other thing I want to talk about, this is based on something I read in Bloomberg City Lab. Um, they have an incredibly detailed article about understanding homelessness in America. So I wanted to kind of walk through some of that. And I'm not going to change a lot of what they said. So I want to give them credit up front, especially because I think these are really important points to everything that's at play here because it is a very complicated situation. Um, but I, I don't want anyone to think that I like tracked all this information down in all of these different areas. Uh, Nikki, do you want to take any guesses about when the first major wave of urban homelessness occurred in the U S? Hmm. It would have been around the industrial revolution. 
That's a good guess. Um, it's wrong. It was. <laughs> it was a very good guess. It was actually after the Civil War. Ah. So there's lots of veterans and millions freed from slavery, and they were struggling to find permanent housing. Um, this is also a point where things like poverty, race, and the criminalization of homeless homelessness start to intertwine. Uh, we have vagrancy laws that were enacted as part of the Southern Black Codes, which allowed the arrest of anyone who appeared to be unemployed. Um, so I think there was just there was a lot of stuff starting up, and it goes back that far. But for the next hundred years, homelessness looked very different than it does today. I think this is like, I, I don't know if even stereotype is the right word here, but maybe it is. But if you picture like, even in cartoons, I saw this depiction of a, a man. He's got all his belongings mm. tied up in a bandana to stick. And he's, you know, got that five o'clock shadow and, and, and his clothes look a little older, that kind of thing. Um it, 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 this was largely men who were often seasonal workers, migrating between cities and work sites, hitching rides, and often staying in skid rows. Now, I'm not, this is where skid row comes from when we think about out in California, but these were in many different places, and that term actually meant short-term dormitory-style hotels and lodging houses, hmm. um, which was news to me. Uh, but by the 1980s, we had what was referred to as the quote-unquote new homeless, more likely to be women, families, and minorities, especially African Americans. Uh, they're also less likely to be sheltered than ever before. This transformation started in the 50s and 60s with seemingly well-intentioned policies, which actually, now that I'm thinking about it here in the moment, feels like that connects back to some of the things we were talking about in the episode these things where people think they're doing a good thing, mm -hmm. but there's like a backlash. So first we have urban renewal and regulations. You know, these are meant to decrease crowding and improve living conditions, but it also wound up reducing a significant amount of lodging houses and other unsubsidized affordable housing, especially in minority neighborhoods. We also get effective antipsychotic medication and improved psychiatric practices during this time period. But this progress uh, also aided in the deinstitutionalization of mental health patients. And so what we get is the shuttering of psychiatric facilities, meaning that hundreds of thousands are suddenly left vulnerable to homelessness. Then there's a deinvestment in public housing and other housing programs. This was very startling to me. The U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development, better known as HUD, their budget has never reached 50% of its 1978 budget normalized for today's dollars. Oh, wow. That is incredible to me, and not in the good way. Uh, there was a growing service class of people living from paycheck to paycheck due to deindustrialization. And then during the 80s, we also saw the beginning of reduced public assistance for families. This and issues like that'll sound very familiar to today, mass incarceration, the AIDS crisis, drug epidemics, lack of access to medical care, and exponentially increasing medical costs, those and or their aftermath are all something we see today. Um, we also have gentrification and strict zoning rules that creep up, and they compound all of these other things. All this to say, for someone to boil homelessness down to choice or a series of bad decisions is a gross oversimplification of an incredibly complicated issue. So I lived in downtown Atlanta for several years, and I saw a lot of chronic homelessness. And I also saw the influx of homelessness after Hurricane Katrina. 
you know, I mentioned this because I'm not sure how many of our listeners have been around people experiencing homelessness on a regular basis. Um, I will tack on that. I think this is an additional challenge. It's the old out of sight, out of mind issue for so many in the country. On the other hand, if you are a city dweller, I don't want to say it becomes normal because it never became normal for me, but I do think you get used to it. Neither one of these mindsets are really helpful for change. So I I think that's a good segue of talking about my experience in Atlanta to talk about how we can help and how anyone can help, how you can help. Uh, First, if you encounter someone experiencing homelessness or if they ask you for help, remember kindness. As AJC columnist Nidra Rome put it, whether the answer is yes or no to a request for help, communicate with respect and decency. Consider what it means to any of us to be looked in the eye and treated like a human being, not ignored as if we don't exist. And she's exactly right. Neighborliness and grace are so very important in our daily walks of life, but especially in this situation, which is, it's just different. Um, there are several ways to give, and we'll link to these, but a few options are the National Alliance to End Homelessness, the National Homelessness Law Center, and DePaul USA. If you're local to Atlanta, Atlanta Mission and Atlanta Children's Shelter are a few options. Not everyone is from our neck of, of the woods, but you can easily find places in your community to give online. Just be sure to practice due diligence. Unfortunately, there are people out there who are terrible everywhere. So just use the same normal common sense that you would online. And if you just realize that you don't use common sense online, (laughs) try to get some. That was your reminder. Yep. Um, Money is not the only way to help. You can donate food, goods, and other requested items to organizations who serve the homeless. Or donate your time. Contact community-based organizations where you live, churches, and other places of worship for volunteer opportunities. This episode of Designing Women was a good reminder. 34 years have gone by. Um, Our political leaders are still fighting over the same things. Let them fight. Progress starts with you, and it starts with me, and it starts with us. And that's this week's Extra Sugar.